Isn't it interesting that business leaders have endlessly experimented with new ways to create innovative cultures? They've trekked to Silicon Valley and all over the world to learn from the hottest and most successful tech companies. They bring in outside consultants and gurus to help drive innovation. And yet, most of these leaders would admit they've failed in these areas. There is a better way, and it all starts with the power of habit. Hey, it's Dustin, and you're listening to another episode of The Burleson Box. We'll be back in a moment to talk with Scott Anthony about his latest book, Eat, Sleep, Innovate, how to make creativity an everyday habit inside your organization. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Dr. Burleson here. You've heard that real estate should be a part of every investor's portfolio, but maybe you're unsure where to start. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, leads an investor community that has ditched the traditional Wall Street model for the stability of real estate assets. They are called Freedom Founders, and they do real estate really, really well. David's Freedom Blueprint reveals exactly how much you need to retire. Some of my top clients have done the program. They speak highly of David and his Freedom Blueprint. With the certainty of their passive real estate investments, Freedom Founders members are free to spend more time with family or even leave the practice altogether. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972-203-6960 or go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson. Scott Anthony is a senior partner at Innosite and former managing partner of the firm. He received his bachelor's degree in economics from Dartmouth and an MBA with high distinction from Harvard Business School, where he was a Baker Scholar. In 2019, Scott was recognized as the number nine most influential management thinker by Thinkers 50, a biannual ranking of global business thinkers. In 2017, he was awarded the Thinkers 50 Innovation Award, which recognizes the world's leading thinker on innovation. In Scott's latest book, Eat, Sleep, Innovate, he provides a new guide for using the power of habit to build a culture of innovation. In today's episode, you'll discover how to empower the individuals on your team and your overall team to be their most curious and creative every single day. Let's see how on this episode of The Burleson Box. Scott, it's, so, it's such an honor to have you here. Thanks for being on the program. In your latest book, you explain how leaders go to great lengths in their quest to create innovative cultures. Most of the focus is on strategy and structure and process, however. Most leaders admit they've failed in those areas, and you say there's a better way. Can you share with our listeners how innovation really happens? Yeah, absolutely, Dustin. And I think the most important thing is to start with what innovation actually is. So I think there's a lot of misperceptions out there about what innovation is, who does it, and how it works. So the definition that we use in the book is a very simple one, something different that creates value. But the words were each chosen with care. Something is an intentionally vague word. We often think that innovation is all about new technology, and therefore it's only done by people who are engineers or who work in laboratories. Of course, technology is one form of innovation, but it can be new ways to market, new ways to organize, new ways to work with employees or whatever. 
That broad word reminds us that innovation is not the responsibility of the few, it's the responsibility of the many. We use the word different versus a great leap forward or a breakthrough to remind us that while we certainly need hypersonic planes and life-saving vaccines, we also relish the day-to-day, everyday improvements that make life just a little bit better and then creates value. Those are the two most important words in the definition because number one, they separate innovation from its precursors, things like invention and creativity. You need that, no doubt. But until you turn it into revenues, profits, employee engagement, customer retention, whatever, in our eyes, you have not innovated. And number two, it reminds you that innovation is not an academic activity. It is a hands-on active activity. So that definition, something different that creates value, is a great starting point for what it takes to ultimately go and realize the benefits and impact from innovation. It's so powerful. I'd like to highlight something I think a lot of our listeners have experienced or maybe are struggling with in their own businesses and starting with a blank page, you know, Steve jobs did not invent the mobile phone, but I think you and I can agree. He made it a lot better by making it different. You know, Elon Musk didn't invent the automobile, but I think he's made it a lot better by making electric vehicles and autonomous driving. Um, Can you highlight that kind of, I know you work with a lot of really smart companies kind of speak to our challenge of trying to like reinvent the wheel. No, it's a huge point. So, you know, you, you, you talk about once you get the definition of innovation in place, you talk about what does it actually take to do it? And in the book, we detail five specific behaviors. I'm going to just list them out quickly and then focus on one of them because it's really important for your question. So to successfully do something different that creates value, you have to be curious. You have to question the status quo. You have to be customer obsessed. You can't create value unless you find a problem worth solving. You have to be collaborative. I'll come back to that in a second. You have to be adept in ambiguity because every idea starts its life partially right and partially wrong. You got to experiment it and figure out how you're going to succeed. And you have to be empowered because you can't do something different that creates value unless you do something. So the third one, collaborative. One of the most persistent findings in the innovation literature is that magic happens at intersections when mindsets and skills collide together. You mentioned Steve Jobs before. Steve Jobs had this great quote about this. He said, if you ask a creative person how they did it, they're often a little guilty because creativity is just connecting things. He was a big fan of the Pablo Picasso quote, good artists copy, great artists steal. So when I talk about collaboration, it isn't just with other people, it's with other ideas. And there is no shame at all in saying, okay, this business down the street is trying this. What if we were to borrow? And maybe we're going to adapt it because our circumstance is different, but you don't get extra bonus points for doing something that no one has done before. The bonus points come from the creation of value. And if you can borrow brilliantly from the outside and create value more quickly, then more credit to you. I see that a lot in businesses who, and particularly clients who who find us, and they have this you know list of ideas that, that have never been tested and never been tried, and instead you know we we nudge them to maybe improve some simple areas in the business that create value and drive value. Throughout the book, um, you reveal these things called beans. I want to kind of dig into those. And beans are I'm reading from the book: behavior enablers, artifacts and nudges, and you've collected them from workplaces around the world uh, that you say unleash the natural innovator inside of everyone. Can you talk, it's such a great part of the book and memorable because it's a great acronym. Can you talk about beans and why they're so important? 
Yeah, so this gets first to, to what is the big problem that we observe for innovation inside organizations. So let me just tell you a little bit about myself, and then I'll, I'll talk about the barrier, then I'll talk about Bean. So one, one thing that's important to know about me is I'm the proud father of four children. They are 14, 12, 9, and 4 years old. And the reason I bring them up is the five behaviors I talked about before are not things that I have to teach to my children because they're children. And like all children, they're naturally curious and they're naturally adaptable and they're naturally collaborative. That's just the way kids are. Yet organizations consistently struggle with innovation. Why is that? Something that I've wondered about for the couple decades that I've been in this field. On the one hand, it's pretty simple. Organizations are designed to do what they are currently doing more effectively, more efficiently. Innovation is something different. So definitionally, it's hard for organizations to overcome the inertia that pulls them to yesterday rather than propelling them to tomorrow. So if you want to encourage the behaviors that drive innovation success, you have to overcome that inertia. You have to embrace principles of habit change so you can encourage those behaviors. And that's what a bean is. A bean is ripped straight from the habit change literature. If you study habit change at all, you know that you have to engage both the rational part of our brains and the unconscious where most of the decision making happens. The behavior enabler gets to the rational part of your brain. It is a checklist. It is a guide. It is a coach that helps you with the hard work of following different behaviors. The artifacts and nudges get to the unconscious part of our brains. They're the visual reminders that reinforce something without you even realizing it. It's a leaderboard taken from gamification ideas. You see that you're number 10 among your peers and you're just so motivated to work harder without you even thinking about it. You combine those things together and we have 101 examples in the book and happy to go into some of them in this discussion here. And you can overcome that inertia. You can encourage the behaviors that drive innovation success. You can improve your ability to do something different that creates value. I love that. And I know in the book you highlight one of those important behaviors being collaboration. You've mentioned it, and I, I really enjoy the uh, example with your kids. And uh, contrasting that to how most organizations work, it's, it's, it's wonderful. You say in the book, quote, great innovators recognize that none of us is as smart as all of us, end quote. And in coaching clients and members and doctors in this program, we have a joke at Burleson Seminars that if the surgery is named after you, you might be a little biased in how smart you think you are. <laughs> That's not really a lot of surgeons and doctors aren't that collaborative when it comes to um, technique. What's your best advice for leaders who have to then put on their business hat, uh, who might run a large dental practice or a plastic surgery practice, um, who are struggling with you know engaging all the talent in their workforce? In other words, struggling with collaboration. Yeah, I would say I would say a couple of things. The first thing is see if you can borrow some of the ideas in the book about simple ways to encourage collaboration. So let me give you a couple of beans that we have seen helpful in other organizations. So the first is something from Berger Ingelheim, great big global consumer and broader healthcare company, pharmaceutical and consumer health. So there's a guy there named David Thompson who a few years ago had, had this moment that we've all had in our life. He went to a corporate cafeteria, remember those things where people used to come together and, and go and eat lunch together? And he, <laughs> he didn't recognize anyone there and he was kind of sad. So he went and took his lunch and went back to his desk and ate alone. And he said, there's got to be a better way. So he worked with an engineer friend to hack together something called lunch roulette. The idea is very simple. You go to a website and you say, these are days where I'm willing to have lunch and locations I'm willing to go. 
And like the roulette wheel spins, a simple algorithm said, okay, here are the couple people that you can go and have lunch with. And it was a very simple way to go and meet new people. And you don't have to be an organization to scale of Burring or Ingelheim to go and do this. We, we do this at our own organization. We're about 100 people. We will every week have a few slots that are available for people who just want to get to know other members of the community. And of course, in the middle of a global pandemic, these things are done virtually versus face to face. But the same basic idea, very simple way to create more connections to encourage collaboration. The other idea from the book is something that IBM has done successfully for years, that they have something called the Innovation Jam, where every year they have essentially an online contest where they say, here is a thematic area where we want to come up with new ideas. Let's jam. Let's have groups come together and see if they can't come up with ways to come up with ideas to do something different that creates value. So you essentially have a contest where you say, whatever our problem is, we want to decrease the wait time or we want people to be more engaged when they're in the waiting room. We want more people to come back. We want more people to refer people to our practice, whatever. You pick a specific area and you say, let's have some fun. Let's see if we can't come up with some ideas. Here are the rough rules of the road and let's go and do something cool together. So those are a couple of very simple things that any organization can do to spur more connections and find ways to collaborate together. I love that. Yeah. And there are a, a ton of examples in the book. And I hope uh, as you're listening to this, you are going through the quick study guide and getting through the book with your team leaders. I want to compare and contrast uh, the behavior enablers and beans to behavior blockers. Can you talk about you know some of the roadblocks you see organizations uh, hit when they're trying to innovate? Yes, absolutely. So the, the basic idea is, you know, so we have these behaviors that determine innovation success. And there might be other behaviors you're trying to drive in your organization, just depending on what you're trying to do. The question you always want to understand is, what are we doing instead of following this behavior? What's essentially the thing that is getting in the way? Now, I identified a big one, which is just inertia. Whatever you're currently doing, almost by definition, is the thing that's getting in the way. But one of the things that we see repeatedly inside many organizations is fear. People are afraid of doing new things in many cases because, number one, they're just scared. You know, humans don't mind change, but humans don't like doing things that make them uncomfortable. So if you haven't done it before, it could just be a little intimidating. And number two, inside many organizations, if you try to do something and it doesn't work, that is a good way to create your exit package. So people naturally don't go and take any risk because they know there's not that much upside and there's very significant downside. So that's one of the very recurrent behavioral blockers we see that because of that fear, people will often sit in silence. They often will overthink ideas or they will propose things that are so safe that they essentially don't have any impact because they know that will prevent them from having to do uncomfortable things and run the risk of having something that doesn't work out. This is a big thing that organizations need to work on to create an environment where people feel like it's safe for them to take well thought out risks. And there's a lot more we could talk about there because that doesn't mean that you should encourage risks that aren't well thought out. But anyway, that's the, the basic idea. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Are you trying to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue? How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff? The answer, remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. 
This needs to be an easy-to-use, easy-onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners. You need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices. With more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com. And now, back to the program. Yeah, I, I do want to dig into that more, particularly as we're recording this in the middle of a global pandemic, and a lot of companies are pivoting and taking risks and creating value and doing exceptionally well, and some are retreating to what used to work and hunkering down and uh, and really struggling. So I know you work with a lot of really smart companies in your firm. Can you share with us maybe some examples of today where you see I, – I think of one example, and before the pandemic, I never – used um, grocery delivery. I, I always went to the grocery store. <clears throat> Excuse me. And today I can't remember the last time I've been inside of a grocery store in the United States. So, you know, I think $100 billion shifted to online groceries really quickly in the pandemic. Kind of wh what are some trends or some um, maybe an example or two with maybe clients you're working with of, of embracing some risks, uh, particularly as they relate to the pandemic? So I'll, I'll answer this question in two parts. Number one, I'll talk a little bit about some of the global trends that we observe. And then number two, I'll just talk about a couple of specific examples of places and spaces where you've seen interesting things happen. So just in terms of global trends, when COVID-19, when it became clear this was going to be a big deal, we had a team of consultants go and assemble a database. You know, One of the things we do in our consulting operations is we work with organizations to help them imagine what the world will look like in 2025 or 2030 and then chart a strategic path to thrive in that new environment. So we have a database of about 300 different trends affecting industries all around the world. And then we said, okay, if we look at these trends and we see what's going on with the pandemic and we look at past history, what are some calls we can make about what's going to be catalyzed or accelerated or what's going to be dislocated? And three big things came up. Nothing that I, I think is rocket science, but still worth noting. The first is the dramatic acceleration of digitalization. You mentioned online shopping. You're seeing it everywhere. We had this great experiment in the world about distributing workforces globally digitally that has worked largely. So we have had underlying trends related to digitalization accelerated by five to 10 years. The second one is a widespread disruption of healthcare. You know, we have talked for a long time about how there are forces at work that push healthcare to the edges, that allow people to do things themselves, that use technology to enable smaller, more remote, lesser skilled people to do great things. That was happening already, but the rise of telemedicine and other sorts of things is dramatically accelerating and will continue. The third is an area that is, is a dislocation. You had very strong forces at work that was pulling the world together, but now we're having greater signs of socioeconomic fragmentation, which will have big implications in the years ahead. So those are, are the big macro things we're seeing. At a more micro level, there are two things I wanted to talk about. The first, one of the case studies in the book is an organization called DBS Bank. It's the largest bank in Southeast Asia, has undergone a broad transformation from being a stodgy, boring, regulated bank 
to functioning like a startup at scale. Really interesting story. One of the interesting things they've done during the pandemic is they've thought about what do we do to use the tools in the book to make sure that digital working is as good as it can possibly be for the people in our organization. They created something called Project Lemonade to make sure that they had good norms for how they were going to do virtual meetings. They introduced some specific beans to try and drive engagement through the pandemic, such as having a ritual of having a check-in for every meeting, asking people on a one to 10 scale, how present are you right now? How excited are you to be in this meeting? A seven or eight, fine. Anything higher, anything lower, you got to explain what's going on. Just a very simple way to create human connection and build empathy. So I think DBS has done some really interesting internally innovative things to try to make sure that its culture maintains in the face of digital dislocation. Then finally, just as a human being, I'm in the United States now. I live out in Singapore, but I'm visiting the U.S. for a range of reasons as we're talking. And just walking down the street in Cambridge, Massachusetts and looking at the restaurant industry and looking at all the ways that people have thought about physical space and creating safe distancing and making sure that there's outdoor dining for those who want it, making sure there's curbside pickup and all the systems in place to do it. It's human ingenuity. It's human ingenuity writ large. And it gives me great faith in our future that we're able to experiment our way and adapt our way to something that ultimately I hope will be not a new normal, but a new better where we can hopefully over time return all the things that we liked about the past and then add on new benefits for convenience and accessibility that makes the world a better place. I like that. Yeah, I like the new better concept. That's uh, I'm going to sh- share that with, and I'll, I'll attribute the quote to you. It's it's wonderful. We saw I'm on I'm on the medical staff at at St. Luke's Hospital here in Kansas City, and I think our cardiology department was doing five to ten virtual consults a week pre pandemic, and now we're doing twenty thousand a week. So it's oh uh, it's it's everyone suddenly is embracing telemedicine and teledentistry and and better ways of doing things. Uh, I really appreciate that. In in the book, you and I love your acronyms because they're memorable. You can you can, you talk about, for example, how a good bean needs to sprout. I want to dig into sprout. Um, you earlier mentioned the the two frames or portions of our brain for decision making. In the book, you then explain this clever acronym, sprout, to help readers understand how how a bean should be um, engaged. Uh, can you kind of share the six criteria, or maybe? A few of them, maybe list them, and then we can we can go into it in more detail. Yeah, I, I think they're the the good news is they're simple enough that I can I'd rattle through them. Let me give you an example just to reinforce it. So one of the beans we have in the book from DBS is this thing called a Gandalf scholarship. Uh, Gandalf, I, I won't make so there's a backstory there, but I won't bore you with it. But the idea is to make it simple for people to learn new things. You get a Gandalf scholarship. DBS gives you up to a thousand Singapore dollars, about seven hundred fifty U.S. dollars to learn whatever you want. The only requirement is you have to teach it back to the organization. The teach back is recorded, it's put on a, a website, people can access the videos. Some are accessed by thousands, if not tens of thousands of people. This is a great bean because it sprouts. It's simple, so you can go and fill in an online form. That's all it takes to go and do it. It's practical. It's not asking you to prioritize a different thing. People do organizational learning and development, so it's not a new thing you have to do. It connects to what you're already doing. It's reinforced. So you have the website that has all the videos. You've got collateral related to the program. So you're getting it from multiple angles. It's organizationally consistent. People at DBS are told they need to learn and develop. They have a budget for learning and develop. It's not asking them to do something and then punishing them when they actually do it. 
It's unusual. A Gandalf scholarship leads you to say, what exactly is that? That's something that I want to learn more about. And then it's trackable. You can go and see how many people do it. You can see how many people are watching the teachbacks, which allow you to say, is this something that's working? In the case of DBS, they found that they get a 30 times impact per dollar spent on Gandalf scholarships versus traditional in-class learning. So that's a pretty good thing that they ought to keep doing. Wow. So that gets you then the acronym Sprout. Yeah, the 30, 30X is, is pretty impressive. Um, talk about uh, uh, listeners heard in the intro uh, how much you write for Harvard Business Publishing and HBR.org. Um, maybe share some takeaways, things that have changed. I know you said you're back now in the U.S. Uh, for a while. Maybe some takeaways from that process. I, I'm always amazed that the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and uh, you know, the Washington Post still get out the door every day and, you know, kind of w- what's changed in the pandemic as everyone's kind of readapting their uh, their workflow. Yeah, there's a whole bunch that I could say here. That's a, it's a really interesting question. You know, if I, if I stick with just Harvard Business Review for a minute, you know, I remember the first thing that I did for Harvard Business Review was uh, it was actually a book in 2004, then an article in 2005. And, you know, the, the thing you had back in those days was scarcity. You know, there was a, a couple dozen books that came out a year. The, the magazine came out 10 times a year and there were basically 10 slots for articles. So 100 articles a year and that was it. And today, of course, you have abundance because you have those things. And you also have Harvard Business Review online where there's no limit to how much can be published. So that's one thing that's a big shift over the course of the past 15, 20 years where you just have so much more stuff out there. Then if you look specifically what, what's happening in the pandemic, one of the things that I think is interesting is as everything started back in February and March, everything is about crisis management, very appropriately, because it was a crisis. We didn't know what was going to happen, et cetera, et cetera. Today, you have a lot talking about condition management. I mean, obviously, things are not great and things are, are particularly bad in different parts of the world. But we know that the world's not going to end. We know that the human species is going to survive. And we know from looking back at history that there will be great opportunities for those who can keep their head up and act in the right way in the face of today's uncertainty. So what you're seeing a lot more of is, okay, what next? How are we really going to now pick up the 52 cards that have been thrown in the air and think about collectively what we're going to do differently? And that, too, is the sense that I've just gotten in the air, just being in the U.S. after not being here since March. You know, I was here in the middle of March, right as the world was kind of reaching its tipping point And, you know, the NBA season was being postponed and travel was being shut down and all that. And at that moment, it's just like, what the heck is going on? And now it's, you know, we know what's going on. We don't love it, but we, we understand it. It's a little bit of grit your teeth and go, but also you see all sorts of moments of humanity and people finding ways to soldier and marshal through and work together to solve problems. So I'm, as you can probably tell Dustin from the way I talk about things, I'm generally an optimistic person. And, uh, you know, I, I see, of course, lots of realistic reasons to be pessimistic, but also I, I see the silver linings as well. Yeah, I I think we've got a we're batting a thousand on optimistic guests on this program, so <laughs> you're in good company. Um, we have, um, you know, I think the tendency to particularly a lot of our our clients who were trying to navigate this very quickly. I think half a million dental healthcare workers were were laid off. Hospitals weren't hit as hard, but certainly elective care was. All of our elective surgeries were shut down, um, and so if you allow yourself to you know, watch cable TV news, for example, and read a lot of online news. It's real easy to be pessimistic in the middle of this. 
but we've always said, you know, we're, we're a creative species. We've, um, you know, we've endured a lot and it certainly doesn't um, discount what we're going through, but I agree with you. I think it's fascinating for me from the business perspective to watch smart companies adapt. And that's why I love your book so much. I think it's very timely and that uh, a lot of the things we did just in March are now completely obsolete, right? So in a lot of dental offices and healthcare practices still had paper forms. They still had paper intake forms, you know, like that's a horrible tool pre-pandemic, but it became instantly obsolete in the area, in the era of a pandemic that spreads so quickly. So, um, you know, I think your book is is, is extremely timely. I know, uh, I know it's um, going to do and is doing extremely well. Talk about, you know, what, and I know you've taken these principles and you've um, help companies deploy strategy. Maybe for the listener who's who's gone through the book and who's uh, we provide a 21 day kind of study guide to kind of nudge them along. Um, talk about you know where you see firms succeed and and make traction with this, and where you see firms struggle. Maybe and I hate to say like what's the first thing you should do because that sim- oversimplifies things, but maybe some advice on where they go next. Yeah, no, it's a great question, and 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 I think there is a you know no silver bullet. Of course, it's complicated if you're really trying to shape an organizational culture and and all that. But I, I will start with the failure mechanism. The failure mechanism. I'll highlight two things. Number one, trying to do too much too soon, which just overwhelms any organization. Number two, not putting any guardrails around things, saying let's all innovate. And not not saying anything more than that. I had this example in the book that's right in chapter one. I, I called it an example of Inoganda innovation meets propaganda. This thing <laughs> I saw when I was with my my family in Cambodia a couple of years ago at a very inspirational organization. But the thing I saw depressed me. It was called the Ideas Box. And when you first look at it, it looks great. It says this box is for you, your ideas, your community. But then you notice that the box has a great big rusted lock on it and has never been opened. <laughs> That's not going to do anything. That's just going to depress people. So if you want to get started, to me, it's pretty simple. Go and pick something. Go and pick something that's irritating you. Pick something that you want to get better. Pick something that it would be an area that could use improvement and say, let's go and attack it somehow. And that might be that you've got a problem you've got to solve for your practice. It might be, again, we, we, we just can't get scheduling to work appropriately or we're not retaining enough customers or whatever. Or it might be we wish everyone inside our practice was just a, a little bit more customer focused. We just wish that we thought a little bit more patient first as we did things. Whatever it is, pick something that's a defined problem to address and go and tackle it. And nothing more complicated than that. You know, don't don't try to change everything in a day, week, or month. But pick something where you can go and bound the problem and go and cause some positive damage. That's excellent. And set guardrails, um, Scott. It's been an absolute honor to have you here. I know I want to give you a chance to share, kind of, you know, where listeners can learn more about you and what you're reading and teaching and publishing. Certainly, if they've picked up um, uh, Harvard Business Review in the last ten years, fifteen years, they've they've read you, whether they know it or not. But um, kind of share, you know, where we can find more about what you're up to. Yeah, so you know we have a good companion website to the book called EatSleepInnovate.com, and that has. A lot of information about how you get the book. It's got a lot of companion tools, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's a great place to start. And then, I, of course, I, in 2020, I'm on all the social media platforms. LinkedIn is the one that I use the most. So you can find me, Scott Anthony. Insight is usually the keywords to find me because there are a number of Scott Anthony's out there. But uh, you use those three words, you can find me and uh, keep up with what I'm doing. Awesome. Scott, thank you so much. It's been an honor. 
Uh, Dustin, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to another episode of The Burleson Box, where we bring you and your team leaders into the conversation with today's best authors and business leaders. If you enjoyed this program, please share us with a friend or colleague. You can visit theburlesonbox.com and sign up to receive my monthly reading list, study guides for each of the books and authors we interview, and so much more. Call us at 800-891-7520, and we can discuss how a Burleson Box membership, monthly coaching, and our annual leadership conference can work for you and your team. Please be sure to listen each month for new resources to help you and your employees serve your patients with excellence. And until next time, remember the words of Cicero who said, A room without books is like a body without a soul. Go, make it a great month, and I'll see you right here next time on The Burleson Box. When's the last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement? Our partners at Stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners, where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. Go to stackspayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stacks. Once again, that's stackspayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving.